Hey, music lovers, the Cannamom Show podcast in collaboration with Lambkin Guitars is giving away a custom-built, one-of-a-kind electric guitar built by Josh Lampkin. The solid one-piece hemp wood body includes a built-in glass bowl piece. Yeah, you heard me right. You can take a hit and then play a lick. Now's your chance to help the Cannamom Show crush cannabis stigma with your entry. Register for the Hemp Guitar Giveaway online at lampkinguitars.com. That's L-A-M-K-I-N guitars.com. The drawing will be part of a 420 celebration at the Goods Dispensary in Somerville, Massachusetts, where the guitar is on display for the month of April. But don't worry, you don't have to live in Mass or be present to win. Visit LampkinGuitars.com to scope out the Hemp Guitar giveaway details and entry form. You'll even find a video of what could be your guitar in action. L-A-M-K-I-N-Guitars.com Everything is personal right here. Everything is personal right here Everything is personal right here Let me end on the N.A. Heat guaranteed when you press in the play Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, welcome to another episode of Everything is Personal. Today, Our co-host, Kimberly Dillon, could not join us, but that's okay, because we have an amazing guest with us, Mr. Kevin Nicholson, who is the Chief Operating Officer of Delacour. Thank you for joining us. Welcome. Appreciate the opportunity, man. Looking forward to it. I said joining us, but it's really joining me because I'm just by myself, but it's us together, so I guess it works. All All right, so... Let, let, let me ask the question up front because you were the chief uh, executive officer of Ketamine Wellness Centers, and then there was an acquisition or a merger. Maybe you can explain a little bit what happened with Delic and how that kind of came about. Yeah, no, it's it's obviously been a little bit of an evolution over the years, but uh, I, I won't keep you uh, keep us and our listeners too long. But uh, I, the Kind of brief evolution is we started doing ketamine treatments for depression and those kind of things, and we'll probably get into that, back in 2012. And there was really a very few uh, clinics and clinicians that were looking into us, into this uh, amazing treatment. And so when we started it, we saw some really good outcomes and great patient uh, responses. And so we started to reach patients from all over the United States and into Canada and different areas. And we needed to kind of get to a point where we could provide additional treatments for patients coming in from all over the place. And it was hard for them to come in from other states. So we started to scale over the years. So in 2015, we officially became ketamine wellness centers and then uh, continued to scale over the last six years up to 10 individual clinics at uh, in eight states. And we started talking with the Delic folks, with Matt and Jackie and the board and the people on Delic about a year ago and really had a shared vision of bringing access and education about psychedelics and getting better communication out to people who are struggling with afflictions that this treatment has been so successful in in patients who were deemed treatment resistant and so forth. So the opportunity to partner with like-minded individuals with their media background and their ability to reach more and more uh, people that need to know about alternative treatments in the community and also some investor backing to be able to scale at a much more aggressive pace so that we could have the additional access to care and opportunities for patients was just, it made sense. You know, the psychedelic 
uh, momentum with MDMA and psilocybin therapy and all these other alternative therapies that are in the process of FDA approval were like, yes, let's, let's do this. Let's educate, let's grow and let's make sure that, uh, people know about it and we can help more and more people throughout the United States and everywhere else. So, yeah, to- totally makes sense. Yeah. Uh, well, let's find out a little bit more about you. Where did you go grow up? Uh, originally from Western Canada, you know, like, like what part of Canada? Calgary, Alberta. So Canada. born and raised in Calgary, graduated. I'm a nurse by background, nurse by training. Um, went to nursing school, graduated back in 92, was sick and tired of cold and shoveling sidewalks and driving in snow and moved to Corpus Christi, Texas in 1993. Interesting. So, so what's in common? The one thing in common, I guess, with Texas and Calgary is cattle, rodeo, <laughs> and stuff like that. I've been in Calgary a couple of times, so I know. Yeah, yeah. yeah. That's about it. That's right. what's in common with South Texas and, and Calgary. It was, exactly. It was a unique opportunity, but uh, – Kind of, you know, loved loved the beach. Got a little tired of the humidity, and uh, currently out here in Arizona now. So love the Got heat. It. Just kind of gave up yeah. the humidity. So, yeah. uh, are you a hockey guy? Yes, yes, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> I actually play in a gentleman's league uh, twice a twice a week. So try to keep those skates uh, not getting too rusty. They they have uh, they have hot, well yeah I guess they have a team in Arizona. I was going to say they have hockey in in the heat. In the, uh, yeah. Even though it's not professional hockey, that's pretty cool. Yeah, I'm I'm, I'm from Philly, so uh, I'm huh. a, I'm a Flyers. Uh, Brown uh, Street Bullies, my that's favorite right. team back in the day. Yeah, so, Bob yeah. Clark. So, uh, well, who who's your team now? Well, I got to go with the local boys, but they're having a tough year. These Coyotes of ours. So when, the when, they, when they don't do too well, then I then I got to cheer on the Calgary Flames. But uh, yeah, so um, so. Why ketamine? Like you're a nurse and uh, here's my take on it. Uh, You know, I grew up, uh, we may be around the same age or so, uh, both have the same hairstyle and a little (laughs) bit of uh, gray in our beards. So uh, I remember the rave culture and there was a big thing with ketamine and uh, the kids were taking ketamine and getting in a K-hole and it, and I remember it was uh, stigmatized as the, uh, you know, this is the, the animal tranquilizer that all the kids are getting in the K-holes. And I mean, I've had personal experiences with that as well, but I'm not going to put myself uh, into it for now, but I would say, what was the impetus? And I and I know there's science behind it, but what was the impetus? You you went through nursing and you you had traditional uh, you know training for pharmaceuticals. How did ketamine come about? It was it was very ironic. You know, I was working. At, I went through critical care training and I was working in emergency rooms, and then I went back to school for uh, my MBA because I wanted to get into the business side of, of hospital administration and those kind of things. And uh, I was running a hospital out here in Arizona and got laid off during an acquisition. Found myself back at the bedside working at the local uh, Arizona Burn Center here in, in Phoenix and got exposed to ketamine as an anesthetic and really found it very effective when we were using it in pediatric patients who had burn injuries in the emergency room. Uh, can I ask a question along those sure. lines? Because I'll forget. Yeah. Uh, when you used it, did you use it intravenously, intermuscularly, or uh, was there a different way that you administered it in the burn centers? I'm just curious. In the burn centers, I always gave it IV. You know, we always gave it IV. It was a dose range based on patients sedation scores and the anesthesiologist or or emergency physician you know again most of the times it was your pediatric population because it had little to no uh respiratory effect plus it elevated blood blood pressure whereas traditional opioids and some of the paralytics would drop blood pressure. So if you had somebody who was a little shocky, you know, it was a pretty, it was a great drug because he didn't have to manage all those other side effects. But um, I actually was picking up odd jobs here and there. And I got a phone call one morning and heard the uh, person on the other end saying, would you be willing to go do some research up at a small little clinic in Scottsdale who's using sedative level ketamine for 
treatment of depression. And I think the call was at about 4.30 in the morning. I was like, excuse me, that's an anesthetic. That makes no sense. You know, that's not an antidepressant. So I called up the, the clinician who was running the office at the time and we discussed it and I was comfortable with what they were doing. So went up there and started sitting in on treatments and in helping to administer these treatments with the medical support and so forth. And like most people, I had friends and family members and colleagues that struggled with depression and suicidality and those kind of things. And because it's such a low dose, you get an opportunity when you're sitting chairside with these patients to kind of talk to them, and get their, get to share their experience. And everything they were sharing with me was so profoundly beautiful that they were getting the relief that they never got from traditional medicines and they didn't have any of the side effects and they got their lives back. And I was hooked. I was like, this is life-changing and I want to be a part of this thing. So so what are the conditions that you, you mentioned depression? Uh, are there other conditions that you're uh, using ketamine for? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because we, you know, obviously depression a lot of time comes with co-occurring um, comorbid uh, diagnoses such as anxiety, such as um, uh, mania, if they're, they have a bipolar type diagnosis, borderline personality disorders. Um, but we mostly treat depression, anxiety, PTSD, OCD, and then in 2015, 2016, we actually moved into treating because there was a clinic here in Arizona that was using it for, again, still sedative level for treatment of certain neuropathic pain conditions. And they closed. So the patients who were receiving treatment at that clinic reached out to us and said, I know you treat mental health. Will you treat chronic pain if we have these types of diagnoses. And once Dr. Murphy, my anesthesiologist, and I went through the protocols and felt that we could safely do it in an outpatient base, we added it to our book of options for patients to read. Still IV, right? Even for pain? Still IV. Yeah. Um, Have you seen any adverse events that occurred from any patients that are getting administered uh, ketamine treatment? Honestly, the worst adverse effect is when it doesn't work because a lot of times we're the last hope. So that's, that was my next question. You just yeah. answered uh, as a last hope. Interesting. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. A lot of times, again, they, the, the historical recommendation coming out of the psychiatric world or out of the mental health world was if you've tried and failed traditionally two or more medications, whether or not they're ineffective or they can't manage them because of the side effects, um, they are deemed treatment resistant, yeah, which treatment sometimes resistant. allows the psychiatric community to prescribe medications off label, you know, so they can then go into maybe some of the atypical antipsychotics and those kind of things to see if it'll help with some of their symptoms. But, um, We've moved past that now. We don't require that diagnosis of treatment-resistant depression anymore. And we that's, again, the momentum with Delic and our education is that you don't need that. You don't need to go through traditional medicines if you choose not to. We yeah. would evaluate you and, and, and determine based on true medical screening protocols and psychological screening protocols if you're if you meet criteria, and then if you want to go this route first, then we'll be happy to take. Yeah, it. it's it's very similar how uh, cannabis is being treated too. Right. They were treating it as uh, it's last resort, but why should it be the last resort? Why can it be? It's a traditional therapeutic. Why wouldn't be a option? And uh, treatment resistant depression is interesting because uh, there are certain genotypes that are associated with uh, treatment resistant depression. So. If you already know this, and, and I, I wanted to ask you about your screening process a little bit more on the mental health side, but if you know this uh, for an individual, why would you not? Why would you try SSRIs when you know they're not going to work for the individual, and also they may have all the side effects of the SSRI unnecessarily so? Uh, it doesn't make any sense that there is no screening process 
I mean, you know, our company, I'm not, I'm not here to promote our company, but we do have a, a newer DNA test that actually can look at that and see if somebody has those genotype predispositions so that'll fold really well into the actual clinical side of it. Right. I actually had an experience when I asked you about the adverse event because I had an experience. Uh, I was speaking to a doctor who's uh, who has some ketamine uh, clinics, not not just ketamine. They, they were administering ketamine at the time. And uh, all of a sudden I'm speaking to her on the phone and there's some yelling in the background. And she's uh-huh. like, hold on. I got to go. I got to go. And right. she called me back a few hours. And she, I'm like, what happened? She goes, uh, we had a patient that had a psychotic episode. Oh, so I was like, I was like. From ketamine? That really? I, I didn't understand because right. I, and I, I kind of understand the mechanism of how ketamine works with chandelier cells and all that stuff. Right. And we, and I want to dig deeper into that a little bit. But it was like, okay, how does that even work? So if you're looking, there is a possibility in research of an adverse effect of ketamine if you have a predisposition to a stress reactivity or slow rate of fear extinction, even though it'll help PTSD. But if somebody's already triggered through stress reactivity and has a genotype associated with psychosis, well, you can get a perfect storm. But if you know this in advance, maybe you can do a beta blocker or maybe you can, as you just mentioned, holding somebody's hand through the process or being there for them, that can change the whole outcome. So I was like, well, if we can help people uh, have a, a, even a more beneficial experience with a psychotropic therapy, ketamine, psilocybin, or MDMA, all the things that you were mentioning before, well, you can help uh, mitigate those possible adverse effects if you know there's a pothole in the road in advance. So that's the kind of thing that we're, we're looking at now. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. You know, and I want to kind of emphasize, you know, not to downplay every medication has side effects and has risks. You know, nausea, you know, is one of our big, you know, side effects during treatments. So if patients are prone to motion sickness and those kind of things, will pre-medicate with an appropriate anti-emetic medication. Um, sometimes headache is afterward. Even though we treat migraine headaches and cluster headaches, right. sometimes traditional uh, mental health infusions can trigger a headache. Now, so we'll, we'll evaluate if they have a history of migraines and so forth. So we may pre-medicate them with medication to avoid those kind of things. It does elevate blood pressure. So we have on-site antihypertensives that are short acting because obviously ketamine is very short acting medication. You don't want to give them something that's going to last in their system for four hours. And they do an IV ketamine treatment over an hour and now their blood pressure is too low for them to go home. So you use some short acting, either beta blockers or alpha blockers, beta blockers, you know, and vasoactive medications intravenously to manage those. And I think what, and we do have on-site benzodiazepine for that strong dissociation that if a patient does get scared, if that patient does get a little too strong of a push, but 99% of the times, because of the way we kind of operationalize our our buildings, we have a clinician chair side with the patient 100% of the time when they're on the drug. Many of our other clinic or other competitors will remote monitor, you know, two or three patients at a time and so forth. But if you get two that are having a strong response, it's triage. You know, you're trying to figure out who you're going to first. But because we set ourselves up by having a chair side clinician with them who can be that guide to be that support. You know, I use the analogy of a Sherpa, you know, we're there to kind of help them, scale that mountain of the psychedelic experience and there to guide them, but they're doing the heavy lifting. The patient is really doing all that work themselves, but we're there to make sure they take the safest trail to the peak. Yeah. yeah so, it's, it's set and setting is uh, everything absolutely. we talk about, you know, yeah. psychedelics that. So I, uh, I'm going to, again, once again, I'm including myself uh, in this, but as an example, but I have this crazy phobia about, Blood work, like I have tattoos and everything, so I'm not afraid of needles per se. But getting my blood taken or having, you know, I, I had COVID, so uh, my my friend's own clinic is like, oh well, well, instead of you taking the 14 supplements that you take, uh, to we'll, we'll just do the IV. I'm like, sure. absolutely not, man. <laughs> There's no way I can't do it. And I remember I was uh, I was 
I have this integrative uh, clinic that I that I uh, was uh, belong to, but they need to take my blood test so they can recommend you know, my personalized whatever therapeutics. And uh, I told them I don't do well with blood tests, so I go there and they I lay down or sort of sit down on, on this thing uh, the same way you get the IV uh, right. treatment. And uh, like, did you have any water today? I'm like, no. I, I thought you're not supposed to eat or drink before a blood test. She goes, no, water you're supposed to drink because it thins your blood and all. So she gave me like a little bottle of water. I drank it, and uh, she I don't look, and she does a thing. It doesn't hurt really hurt, but sure. we're having a conversation. And all of a sudden, I don't know how long it was. I start hearing, uh, "Hey, hey, hey, uh, everybody, come, come here!" I think he's going down, and I hear it. And I thought right. I'm talking, but I was not out all the way. But I was on my way out. And uh, and then she's like, uh, she comes back and gives me orange juice, and I drink, and I I get that uh, back. And she goes, "Okay, you're good. Yeah, I'm good. All right, uh, we're gonna continue." I'm like, oh shit, I thought you were done. You got to do it again after all this, but I was fine. So the point that I'm, uh, the reason why I'm bringing up the story is people may go in with heightened anxiety, heightened cortisol levels, just because it's new. It's something. So by you, and I think I read somewhere on your site, you have a personalized approach that you deal with people and the intake that you have. So I'm curious what that process, if you can walk me through sort of the patient intake process, because I would be one of those people, even though I mean, I've done ketamine, I've done all kinds of <laughs> substances, but still, because I'm going to be focused on a needle going in my arm. So I'm just curious how, how that sort of works, the patient process. Yeah, it's, you know, so most and if you And if you have a solution for me, please recommend. <laughs> Should I do some ketamine before I go do the blood test? <laughs> uh, yeah, you want to definitely hydrate the day before. Um, that's what I try to tell a lot of people is that they'll go in, like you said, and they'll, they'll say, you know, I drank a bunch of water this morning. And it's like, okay, well, you're going to be in the chair for an hour and a half. More than likely, we're going to have to stop so that you can go to the bathroom. So we try to get people hydrating the day before so that they in, in you know increase their intravascular space at that time. So, but back to your question about the intake process. So probably 80% of our patients find us independently. You know, they they find you know, we get referrals from other patients and we get referrals from from some clinicians. Over the years, it's become a lot more mainstream. So obviously, more psychiatrists and you know, and pain management doctors are will are willing to refer. But um, so, if patients reach out to us either telephonically on our phone number, you know, at eight five five Ketwell, or you know, the email go onto the website, which I'm sure you'll give it out at the end or whatever. There's an intake link, and our policy is we have patient liaisons. And a lot of our patient liaisons have actually been through the treatments themselves. So they really do have value. Not all of them, but some of them have gone through it because, again, most, most of the world these days is dealing with some level of depression or anxiety. Um, so when we get the intake query, somebody will humanly reach out to them and set up a time to talk to them about it. And our policy is that if it takes them 15 minutes or takes them an hour and 15 minutes, that liaison stays on the phone with that person and helps to kind of educate them. Now, if it's more medical, then they will refer it to a clinician to make sure that they're not speaking out of turn if they have specifics related to medications that they may be concerned about interfering and stuff. But again, ketamine is really benign. The, the secondary interactions with medications are very few and far between. So, um, so once they feel that ketamine is an option for them, you know, there's a screening fee. It's $125 that we administer them a nationally recognized psych psychological assessment that they do online. Okay. It's called the, it's called the, uh, a PAI. It's a personality assessment inventory and it's 344 questions, and it is it is recognized as an as a tool that is used for evaluating depression and anxiety. And what it does is it gives us a report, or it gives my clinical psychologist a report that delves into not just depression, but substance abuse, um, borderline personality disorders, paranoia, any of those kind of areas that we got to be mindful of when you're giving a patient a psychedelic medication. Um, 
That report is then generated. Once the, the, the patient's done, there is a intake interview either done by Dr. Diamond or her colleagues that they do a web-based interview with the patient mm-hmm. to make sure that, because again, data is, is, is only as good as the person who puts it into the, into the computer. Um, Dr. Diamond reviews those, those documents and then screens for any history of psych, uh, acute psychotic episodes schizophrenia, or any significant current use of drugs or alcohol that may potentially be problematic during the treatment, okay? Um, Then there's a medical screening that is completed by Dr. Murphy or his team members, uh, either the nurse practitioners, the PAs, the MAs, which again is an interview on the phone. Um, We already have their demographic information. Dr. Murphy looks it over, looks at medication interactions and those kind of things, make sure that those are a non-issue. Then once cleared, we the liaison who's been working with you as the patient calls back and says, we're good to go. We set them up for treatment, you know, starting on a day that's convenient for them and make sure that the protocol is, is tied to what we've known has worked based on. Yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> it's great. Yeah, it makes sense. We, yeah. should, we should talk about possibly looking into doing a genetic screening too, because I think, uh, Love it. yeah, it, it'll give you those genetic predispositions associated with that. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you can see how to mitigate those possible, uh, you know, potholes along the way, as I, as I was mentioning. Love that idea. You know, the more, you know, uh, I was sharing with our marketing team today, cause we're doing some, some, uh, presentations coming up and presented some data that we've been able to pull over the last few years. And I'm really wanted to dig deeper into some of this stuff because we were able to show really high efficacy on our, I looked at different, uh, personality disorders, whether or not it was, uh, you know, borderline personality disorder or a diagnosis of bipolar and what our success rate was based on actual metrics that we measure prior to each treatment. And bipolar disease was 80% success rate. Wow. Depression was 76. You know, depression and anxiety was about 67%. And again, these are these guys that are deemed treatment resistant. So, um, and then I started digging into medications and looking at um, some of the categories that we're looking at. And that's where we need to drill down because is there a limiting effect of patient treatment if a patient's on maybe effects are at 75 milligrams versus 150 milligrams, you know, and, and, and if there is, and there's statistical evidence of that, you know, then we can work with that patient and their prescriber to say, can we safely reduce this patient down to 75% because it exponentially changes their potential of getting better by this amount. So, yeah, I was, I was going to ask you if you were involved in any studies or the data that you're gathering. I think I read somewhere 60,000 or so treatments, maybe more yeah. or somewhere, somewhere yeah. in that. So, I mean, you're getting a lot of information coming back. Right. How are you slicing and dicing that data? And are you participating in any clinical research on, on some of this work? We... Honestly, no, we haven't yet. You know, we've got a ton of data and that's where, you know, I think our, my, my focus over the last five years prior to our relationship with Delic was just grow and grind, grind and grow, you know, and, and make sure that we have this treatment just optimized and doing what we can do and, you know, and adding as many clinics as we can and, and getting profitable. Right. Um, but yes, there's, there's definitely, now we've got a, a team and an infrastructure. We got Delic Labs that's up in Canada that's doing some work on cannabis and different, different things that, you know, they've got a lot of real smart people working up there. So it's like, if, if we can take some of that talent and to give them the data and let them start crunching those numbers yeah. and I don't have to, you know, go outside to, to do that and we've got it there. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. No. Makes sense. The other question, when you were talking about benzos, uh, did you ever consider using like cannabidiol CBD uh, as an option for, as the, for that calming effect, uh, anti-anxiety type of effect in your clinics? Recommend it all the time. (laughs) Recommend it all the time. You know, um, some pharmaceutical salesperson out there is going to be pissed at me, but I (laughs) do my damnedest to try to, 
And it's, it's, it's a slippery slope. And again, as a nurse, I'm not prescribing. So I'm making recommendations to them to take to their prescribing physician. But the, 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 it's sad. You know, I'm really frustrated with the over-prescribing of benzodiazepines for anxiety, especially in our youth, you know, and we're, we're getting into this and the evolution or the growth in, in the dosing needed to maintain, you know, a stable state just grows rapidly. But to come off of that stuff, that's what, that's what I was going to say. I mean, I've 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 had some conversations with uh, clinics uh, that are using you know ibogaine etc. to be able to get heroin addicts off, of, and they're saying some of the withdrawals from a benzo are even worse. Oh, they're brutal. Yeah, they're brutal. Yeah, they're oh, brutal. God. You know, again, not to get too granular, but when we were working in the burn unit, you know, uh, working with severe burns, you know, we were creating opioid addicts because you're got to manage their pain. You're giving them so much drug to get them through that acute scenario. But when you got them well enough to get them off, it was months of, of tailoring and tapering those medications to try to get them so that they could go home and not go through withdrawal and end up, you know, in a, in a, in an addiction type so somebody's probably going to call me out on this uh, for the data because I'm I'm kind of winging it, but I believe uh, somewhere around one in four people have a genotype that's associated with opioid dependence. So if uh, four of us are taking an opioid, like I don't do well with opiates. I've only taken it once in my life. I had a dry socket when I got my wisdom teeth out. I took an oxy, mm-hmm. and it was like one of the worst experiences. I, I this is not for me, but. You know, four of us can share one and one of us be like, shit, this is the greatest thing I ever had in my life. I don't want anything more. I don't love my wife. I don't love my kids. I love this. And I need more of that stuff. Right. So if you, if people just screen in advance and understand, like, you have to deal with people in an individual level. And we have this kind of mentality. It's a one size fits all. You come in, give everybody the same thing. So I, I love the personalized approach. And what you're talking about is, you know, let's talk to the people. Let's find out. Everybody's an individual. You can't just come in and say, Come in and, you know, do your IV and it's the same for everybody. It's, it's a really no. a personalized experience. So, yeah, you know, and we learned that over the years, you know, because the data that was out there was very small samples and it was 0.5 milligrams per kilo. And you would administer over 45 minutes to an hour. And that was what they did. And we found very early on that there needed to be dose adjusting based on patient response. And it's not uncommon that, and this is part of the education because people fear addiction. People fear being tied to a medication that may or may not work or will work at this dose and then lose benefit if you're not able to titrate it and those kind of things. But even in our initial stabilization series, which sometimes is either four treatments or six treatments early on, um, we traditionally do start at the 0.5, but it's not uncommon for us to have to jump to 0.6, to 0.7, to 0.9, to 1.0. Yeah, but Kevin, you said, like, you just said people fear, right? But when you go to a doctor and doctor says, take two of these and it's no pain, nobody asks anything. They don't fear uh, the other stuff that they put in their body, but they fear this. It's also a pharmaceutical, which is really weird. And, and, you know, it's funny because cannabis was treated the same way. There's there's this book called The Green Book out of Israel that said, you know, X amount of kilogram, uh, milligrams per kilogram and all that stuff. Right. But it's not just about what you weigh, your, your metabolic uh, right. function, your, your uh, pharmacokinetics, your pharma, all these other things come to play and, and it's an individual experience. It, it's just so interesting to me how, you know, if the, the trust with your healthcare professional is such that even, you know, people are prescribing the z pack for COVID, which is all over the place. I'm like, right. Why? Well, because the doctor said so. Do you ever, ever question that? But, you know, if you're administering ketamine, uh, which has been around for what, 30, 40, I don't, I don't know yeah, how many years. 50, almost 50 years. 50 years. There you go. Yeah. No. What do, you, what do you mean? That's alternative right. therapy. I get a question that tenfold. So. Well, and I also get, I laugh at the, um, I, I'll tell patients all the time because they'll ask me about the 
animal tranquilizer, cat tranquilizer, a horse tranquilizer medication. And it was even on that movie Armageddon when, you know, they were being <laughs> blood tested. And he said, this guy tested positive for ketamine. It's a horse tranquilizer. <laughs> Bruce Willis says, well, these guys are really big. It's like, okay. <laughs> so it's out there. But, you know, I tell people, I'm like, my dog, I have three dogs. And one of them is Chocolate Lab. And he loves to eat things that he shouldn't eat. And he's had to go in for surgeries a couple of times. Guess what? He was put on trazodone for a sleeping aid, which is a, is, a, is a mammal medication. He was giving oxycodone for pain relief. He was given antibiotics, which was a penicillin derivative and stuff like that. I'm like, I don't know why we only think that ketamine is the only medication that crosses over between human use and veterinary use. Everything tra- crosses over. Yeah, they're, they're mammals, so, right? They're, yes, they're uh, it's the same thing with ca- uh, cannabis. Is the same right. thing. Like they have an endocannabinoid system too. Yes, they're different. Their body weights are different. You have to treat it differently. But they, you know, there is medication crossover. You're absolutely correct. So, yeah. yeah. Uh, so, in from from a high level, maybe you can explain the mechanism. How does ketamine actually work, and why why is it effective? Yeah, you know, so the way I try to explain it, we did a few videos because of just trying to make sure that it makes sense, is obviously it 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 works on the glutamate system and, and it breaks down, it increases brain-derived neurotropic factor and all this kind of- Yeah, BDNF. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so the way I- I try to explain it is a lot of times people will say, how does it work differently than my traditional antidepressants? And the best way that I can use an analogy is think of a shipping port. So you got your neurons in your brains and you got your capillaries that come across and you've got these chemicals like serotonin and norepinephrine and dopamine that connect. They're the ships that are the, they're the cargo that goes across on those ships and it helps to for mood and energy, and it works in certain parts of the brain. For whatever reason, whether or not it's genetic, whether it was trauma, whether or not it was just medication-related, whatever, for some reason, that shipping port shuts down. And so traditional oral antidepressants, you can fill up those cargo ships, but if that ship is not moving back and forth, you're not going to get any relief. So what ketamine does by increasing this activity and this neurosynaptic junction is it stimulates that shipping port to reopen and the traditional normal passage of those cargo back and forth between the neurons starts moving again in areas where it was shut down. I I love that analogy. It's such a perfect picture because that's the way I, my brain works. Uh, You know, I can read the science, but if you put it out there with an analogy, like I can visualize it. Uh, So I had a, I went to a class uh, uh, taught by uh, Dr. Jeff Becker. Uh, he's a ketamine uh, specialist. I remember he made this analogy. Uh, he got really deep. So I was, <laughs> I, I think I, I smoked a joint at that time. So uh, <laughs> I was, uh, I was not paying attention as much, but I remember this. So you, you said it beautifully. And if I can just elaborate and correct me if I'm wrong. Uh, so there's neurons and there's, uh, he's called these other neurons, the chandelier cell neurons. And what he was saying was that there is sort of a choke hold of these uh, chandelier cells that don't communicate through a synapse. They can actually communicate and they choke off that port. And what happens is when ketamine is administered, that chandelier cell kind of opens up like a flower and it, and it takes in the ketamine and it opens up the junction where it's being held up so the ship can flow through. So that's the way I kind of understood it, but I, th- I think you explained it really well. Yeah, yeah. No, it's it's they're obviously still continuing to do more and more research and you know and come out with because the question still, yeah, I treated a friend of mine's daughter who struggled with PTSD and had chronic pain and those kind of things. And she's a clinician by trade. You know, she was a nurse, she was military. And she asked me, you know, many, many moons ago before we treated her daughter, um, how does this work? It doesn't, how does it work on mood? You know, that makes no sense. And I just finally told her, it just does. You know, we can we can we can discuss the reasons why it works in the brain and the and the neurological changes and, and you know, all the biochemistry components to it. But how that transitions into mood, 
I think is still a little bit unknown. And I think that's the beauty of psychedelic treatments is that, you know, that you don't always have to know why, but we know the result works. So yeah. let, let's, let's help those people who, who um, need help. You know? Yeah. Yeah. And we got to, you're absolutely right. We got to dig into it a little bit more, but one of the other things that I, I, and I, when I've talked to people that had a, you know, ketamine treatment, what happens and people who are administering it as well, uh, and also others, uh, psychedelics and, uh, and psychotropics, but it takes several, for some people, it takes several sessions. Uh, uh, some, and, and what happens is, this is what was told to me, but we work with veterans too, a lot of veterans with PTSD. It's been extremely effective for them. But some of them, what happens is they have PTSD, basically, they'll replay the movie in your head over and over. So if they had a, a you know, a, a stressful event or some sort of uh, a event that created fear and, and they have a slow rate of fear extinction. It's in their subconscious. It keeps coming up as a movie that's played. So right. now it gives them hope there. They have their ketamine treatment. They, they can see a different scene, but when they come out of that treatment, if they don't have either a psychotherapy or somebody you talk to, or maybe continual, they can sort of go back to that. So it, it maybe you can talk about, you know, the, is it just a one and done or do you have to do that? And do you combine it with talk therapy? What would some of your suggestions be? Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. Because, um, you know, let's face it these days, uh, unfortunately, the world is looking for that, uh, that one shot bullet that's going to fix everything. You know, it's like I, I want one of these treatments and I want to be cured and I, I want to be so productive. And again, that's part of the education. So, um, and I want to kind of make sure I get back to our analogy of the three-legged stool. But traditionally, you're right in regards to it does take it like a loading dose to kind of get a patient, what we call a stabilization series. Um, some facilities recommend six. We recommend four. Um, sometimes we'll recommend six. It's based on the psych psychological evaluation and the medical evaluation that we look at certain medication interactions, certain suicidality indicators and those kind of things where it might require a sixth uh, or a sixth treatment program to get them stabilized versus four. Um, and again, this was coming back to data back in the day where we were going traditionally after their stabilization series, we still needed to see them about 10 days later. So if we're seeing them 10 days later after four treatments or after six treatments, and we still only need to see them 10 days later after four, let's save their money. Let's allow them to see if it holds their, their symptoms at bay for a little bit longer and start to then space out the treatments over time. So we usually go to 10 to 14 days and then out to three weeks and then out to a month, again, based on the patient response. Um, sometimes there's months, like our bus busiest months is November, December, whether or not it's weather related or it, a lot of times the stress of the holidays, stress of seeing family, the interactions that they're having to see, we get significant bump in symptoms re reoccurring around that time. So we tell people if they can kind of keep track of that because maybe we don't need to treat them as often in the summertime, but they may need to kind of plan that they might need a little more treatment around those, those triggers or those anniversaries. Yeah. Well, you're in Arizona, so would the weather really <laughs> impact? It, surprisingly, <laughs> what I hear is it's not so much the weather, but we get very short days starting in about October and just that kind of dark, you know, dark at, up until seven, eight o'clock in the morning and then still dark or getting dark at six o'clock. Some people struggle with that. So, yeah. Well, there's a gene, if I remember correctly, uh, there's a series of genes that are associated with. Uh, seasonal mood problems. Huh? Right. So if somebody has a genotype associated that, especially people who live like in a cold climate, they can get super, super depressed in the wintertime. But you write about the shorter days. That, that makes a lot of sense. And well, just, yes. don't put, just don't put me at my clinic in Washington <laughs> for more than two weeks in the wintertime because <laughs> I will be needing to get into that chair because uh, missing the blue sky and the sun for months on end, I, I would not 
do well in that environment. I, I, I lived in Philly like most of my life. I've been in LA for like 12 years. Like, right. what the hell was I doing with the weather? Oh my God, it's like brutal. But I, but it, it makes total sense. And, and definitely spending time with a family and holidays can elevate stress levels. For Absolutely. Sure. Absolutely. Especially makes, if you kind sense. of distanced yourself from them over the year. You know, it's, it's that, you know, do I want to answer that phone call or do I just want to hit ignore? Well, it, and then it's, you know, Christmas Eve and it's like, I got to answer that thing. So, but back to kind of our, you know, the company's philosophy on kind of that three-legged stool. Again, I'm a kind of an analogy guy. Mm-hmm. So ketamine is one part of that three-legged stool. And that might include obviously psilocybin, MDMA, cannabis, those kind of things. So that's the medical component, but that shouldn't be just using that alone. You're you're not going to be successful. Tying in mental health support with uh, mental health practitioners, people who, you know, maybe have a good relationship with church and those kind of things, you know, counselors and, and social workers and those kind of things. There's real, even just somebody who isn't going to Who's going to, what I tell people, because a lot of times patients will come to us who've been through traditional cognitive therapy and those kind of things, and it hasn't worked for them. But now I try to help educate them that now your brain's been rewired. You might be able to actually access those things that you were taught before and put them into practice, whereas before you weren't physically and mentally able to do that because your brain wasn't wired right. And then the, so the, the mental health and the, the support, like you said, especially with PTSD and veterans is critical. Um, then the other part is obviously diet, exercise, healthy eating, um, you know, whether or not it's doing yoga, those kind of things. Healthy living activities can definitely extend, increase that neurotropic factor, increase dopamine and all that kind of stuff. Because everybody knows if you get a good exercise in, you know, you feel better. It's getting people unstuck with ketamine that if you can get them working on these other things, it's not the best business plan, but ideally in one to two years, if they never need to come see us or if they only need to come see us when they, when they can't manage their symptoms, that's a beautiful thing. Yeah. No, I I love what you just said because absolutely. And I completely uh, concur with you three legged stool because lifestyle, how are you, what are you going to do with your life? Uh, Inflammation. Now you look in the mirror, you don't feel good. We don't feel good. You don't exercise. You know, you're not creating dopamine. You're not building serotonin uh, yourself. All these things are really important. So I'm really, really glad you said that. What you put in your body uh, makes a lot of sense. And you also mentioned, I was going to ask you, you you sort of alluded to it, uh, other psychedelics and things that you Mm -hmm. you guys are moving into, uh, you know, cannabis and, uh, and also as trials continue, I think we're in phase three for psilocybin and MDMA right. and, uh, you know, maybe so at some point LSD and some of the other, uh, psychedelics too. Are you guys starting to look at those as therapies as well? Yeah, we're open to all of them, you know, and that's, that's what we, we approach it from a medical perspective to be responsible and try to get the, um, the common consumer who may have dabbled in some psychedelics and those kind of things or try, you know, utilize something back in college or they, you know, they use cannabis and stuff just to recreationally and stuff that we want it to be the mainstream conversation that, you know, this is safe. It's done responsibly. We want to get, you know, the VA system is actually light years ahead, believe it or not, in regards to, evaluating and looking at ketamine therapy currently as a paid treatment option under the VA benefits and the CCN benefits in certain states. We've got contracts in Minnesota. We've got contracts in Illinois, which is great. And I'm like, come on, we need nine other other states, 10 other states that we're in right now. Some of them are really slow, but they're actually reimbursing for not only for pain, but for the mental health treatments. And the reimbursements, even though not tremendous, they're, they're supportive enough that if you run, you know, your organization responsibly and you keep your expenses down, you can be profitable. You can, you can still put some money to the bottom line and keep your doors open. That's so, great. I, I'm yeah. so glad to hear that because they don't look at 
uh, cannabis in the same way. Right. Officially. But unofficially, there is some work that's going on behind the scenes. I, I was in a panel with somebody from the VA and they were hammering me about cannabis and all that stuff. I'm like, okay, you know, I get it. You got to take your position. And after the, the talk is over, somebody taps you my shoulder and it's this woman from the VA. And she's like, uh, can we have a conversation a little bit more about cannabis and research that you guys are doing? <laughs> like, all right, I get it. So you have one face here right. behind the scenes. You're looking at it differently, which, you know, it's politics, I guess. Right, right. Which is, which is sad, you know, you know, my... My my wife wanted me to wear my F Pharma shirt on to this <laughs> podcast today. I was like, yeah, I don't know whether or not that will go over that well. But and, and ketamine is a you know it's a pharmaceutical product. It Eventually, yeah. it's it's all about you know how you utilize it. Right. And there's abuse in everything that you do. And I and I I love what you said about you know you look at all these substances as therapeutic substances or medical substances, cannabis included. Yeah. Uh, you can abuse anything. You can abuse sugar. You can abuse chocolate. Anything. Anything. So Absolutely. It's, it's just a, a way to be able to create a personal experience. Have you uh, tried the therapy yourself? I have not, you know, and this is always kind of a debate that uh, I got into a little bit at the meet Delic meeting because everybody that I was on a panel with had, and they said, well, we really feel like, you know, if you're going to be providing this psychedelic treatment, you need to experience it. And I, I'm not afraid of it, you know, so that's not, you know, that I'm not concerned, but I, I feel like the, for me to maintain, if I needed it, I'd be in that chair and taking care of it. Now I've tried other psychedelics in my youth and yeah. had no problem with those kind of things, but I have not gone through the ketamine treatment. But the other reason is that one of the things I like to make sure that my liaisons who are teaching a lot of patients is, is Let's make sure that we don't try to get the patient to understand what their experience is going to be because everybody's experience and every individual experience is so unique. And that's what I've been able to see as a clinician chair side, you know, and be able to, you know, I've personally probably administered and sat chair side with probably 15 10,000 10, of these infusions. And, and, you know, not that every patient is unique and they can have different experiences, but you can treat a patient with the exact same dose. And depending on where their mood's at, when they come in, depending on what their sleep pattern was like the night before and those kind of things, they may get a beautiful, calm, you know, experience where they feel very angelic and, you know, get some really deep insight and the next treatment they come in can bring up a whole different experience and they can be hanging on to that chair like it feels like forever and you're there to hold their hand and breathe through some of those anxious moments and that kind of stuff and you get them through that. So, you know, yes, if I did go through a treatment, again, I'd be looking forward to the result. But I don't know whether or not it would change how I how I can support my patients because my experience would be so unique. Yeah, I I, I don't disagree with that at all. I'm just yeah. uh, more more curious. Yeah. Uh, are you are you a cannabis uh, user? I have been. I have been. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I have been in the past. Arizona just passed the recreational law, which was which was great. You know, and finally able to kind of get uh, people to get away. I, I didn't. I went through. Um, surgery back when I was 39. I'm 51 now. It was pretty significant surgery. Yeah, I'm, I'm 50, we're the same age. From there you go. So I was, you know, I was having some post uh, open chest surgery anxiety and I was this close because again, I had some anxiety and at that time, even um, medical marijuana wasn't legal here in Arizona. So I called my cardiologist up and my surgeon and they, of course, what did they prescribe me? Xanax. And it's like, did you know? Did a couple of days of that, and was so groggy and completely unable to really function. I was like, screw it. So you know, I moved away from it. But from an anxiety perspective, it worked very well in regards to the cannabis side. So got it. Yeah, because I, I asked you because I asked all my guests uh, three questions at the, yeah. end of the podcast, and one of them has to do with cannabis. I wanted to see if uh, you yeah know, you've used it before. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. 
Um, so I, I, before we go into the three questions, I just uh, sure. kind of final uh, from a business standpoint. So what is sort of your business goals now with Delic? Uh, are you looking to scale more clinics, go internationally? Like what is uh, uh, what is like sort of the business goal? Yeah, big, big uh, plans on scale. You know, um, so our our goal for this year is 15 clinics additional clinics on top of our current 12. So we got 12 in nine states currently. Our latest one opened up in Salt Lake City, Utah, and it's already starting to get really busy, which is wonderful. You know, love it. Um, But yeah, we've got uh, plans for 15 additional clinics in the U.S. Um, Obviously growing, being prepared when the uh, MDMA psilocybin programs roll out. We're going to be adding in other uh, therapeutics. We are going to add in the Spravato option for our patients who want to use the Johnson & Johnson FDA-approved medication, which is intranasal, so that you know if they have insurance or something like that, they might be able to get the benefit and then have the option of IV therapy and those kind of things in conjunction with it if it does, doesn't isn't as effective as possible. And then our biggest push, obviously, in in with Delic and their media side is really pushing the communication, the community education, and growing, making it more affordable and trying to getting it into mainstream consumption and use for those people who who are looking for an alternative, you know, and making it the more of a first line option as opposed to a secondary or third. So. Great. Love that. I lied. I have one question just kind of came up. Uh, um, do you know, <clears throat> either from the experience with uh, with your clinics, et cetera, is there a different sort of uh, outcome or feeling when, depending on how you consume ketamine, uh, intravenously versus IV versus uh, intermuscularly versus, you know, I recreational, I don't know if it's recreational or not, but people are, are consuming it, uh, you know, nasally, they're, right. they're, right. they're inhaling it through their nose. Is there a difference? Well, we, you know, we did try early on when we were back in 2012, we, we tried IV therapy, intranasal therapy, and intramuscular therapy. And the reason we went to primarily all uh, IV therapy is just the mechanism of action of ketamine is so quick and it's on and it's off that trying to get the right dose intranasally was very difficult, difficult, and it was difficult to dose consistently. So if you had a patient who was coming in for a routine treatment, we one day we would end up giving them 100 milligrams, and then the next day we would end up giving them 200 milligrams. And so it was very erratic. The intermuscular was similar because, again, depending on the adipose tissue and how much the bioavailability and when we, you know, if you put the injection into the shoulder versus the hip and, you know, making sure that you're getting that optimal amount. I love the fact that there's lots of people that are utilizing different administration techniques Mm -hmm. and getting decent results. We feel still strongly that the IV therapy is the the best option to get the optimal and most precise dose administered at the right level for the right amount of time. So again, you know, getting that set, getting that, you know, and I'm again, looking at right now it's a milligram amount, but maybe with some of the the information that you're, you know, that we could maybe collaborate on is um, looking at, is there a milligram per kilo per minute dose that is optimal for somebody that we could identify that you know, we could get them into that state, maybe shorten the infusion duration if we can optimize their treatment and reduce the costs so that we can bring bring some of those costs because right now the biggest cost is that labor component of yeah. Yeah, hundred uh, percent. So uh the the screen froze for a second. Oh, no worries. There was a delay. <laughs> um, so, uh, um, why do people take this uh, recreationally? Like, what is the uh, uh, you, you know some some drugs you take as party drugs and you know like MDMA and I get that because there's serotonin. But what is? Uh, I'm just asking an opinion. It's not a not a medical yeah, uh, kind of no. question. I'm just curious why it's such a popular recreational uh, substance. 
I honestly don't know. You know, I honestly don't know because, you know, I've, I, again, I've never imbibed in it. You know, again, yeah. I've tried other psychedelics that yeah. I enjoyed, you know, at a, at a concert or a party or something like right. that. You know, this, that, you know, that experience to, you know, music, you know, I look at your Black Sabbath album in the back and I'm going to sit there going, yes, you know, there's so many <laughs> good memories of, the, you know, that paranoid album, you know, on, on different medication, you know, different drugs and that kind of stuff. And it's like, this is, but I think it's that, that dissociation that, you know, just out of body experience where you, you disconnect and dissociate from your physical self and you can explore, you know, the different parts of your brain and, you know, and, and sometimes it takes you into these beautiful spaces. And sometimes from what I hear, it can be also a little bit off-putting so you know depending on you know the environment that you're in you know that could be a, a wonderful experience and that may be something that you would want to do time and time again or yeah. if it goes bad you might be nope <laughs> <I'll pass. laughs> yeah cool it makes sense all right so yeah. let me ask you the uh the question there may be a bonus question i'm not sure yet no worries i got time some difficult ones all right, all right. uh please describe your first experience with cannabis who okay man that's that's gonna be going back a few years um was at a friend's house uh he got some and uh my brother was more experienced than we were and when we were rolling up our first joint it looked like a banana <laughs> and, and we really got nothing out of it until he, you know, his friend taught us how to roll one properly. And I'm telling you, I've never smiled as much as I smiled for that about two hours and just sat there and kind of outside in freaking freezing cold Calgary and just said, this is the best shit ever. <laughs> I just love it. Love that. Love that. <laughs> That's awesome. I love that. Yeah. All right. So being a music guy, we just uh, yeah. kind of, you touched on it. I'm a big music guy, as uh, uh, you apparently can uh, can tell. Uh, what Do you remember the first concert you ever went to? Uh, Scorpions Worldwide Live. Yes. <laughs> it was awesome. <laughs> it was it was great. And right on the heels of that one, I went to my first Black Sabbath, you know, uh, concert, which was Mob Rules. That was Oh, yeah. Awesome. Yeah, I have a uh, Ronnie James Dio. Yeah, yeah. I have uh, there's a I don't know if you can see it up here, but I have oh yeah the Black Sabbath yeah. uh, picture right there. But it's it's the original with Ozzy. Believe it or not, my wife, um, I had, I was a huge Kiss fan as a kid. You know, my first album I ever bought was uh, Love Gun. You know, and just played it till the needle broke on my on my record. By the way, that was my next question. What was the first album you ever bought? <laughs> I read your mind. <laughs> Yeah, Love Gun was my first, but I loved them and I never saw them until two years ago. And my wife surprised me with first row tickets to their last worldwide tour, <laughs> but it was freaking amazing, you know, so... So I saw, I mean, I saw the the, the last Sabbath tour, there were mm-hmm. the Hollywood Bowl, uh, This Is The End, but... Kiss. So I had a couple, I saw them, the big show at Dodger Stadium they had, right. but I saw a really interesting show and that's where the picture is from here. I don't know if you can kind of see. Uh, so it's a, and it's a, it was an acoustic show in a casino and they basically did covers, a lot of covers. They did like Led Zeppelin covers oh, sitting down and playing acoustically. It blew my mind. That's just, amazing. Uh, did you just happen to happen upon it or was it something that you just- I, I go like this, this is my thing. The worst, one of the worst thing about being locked in and locked down during COVID, I couldn't see music. I I say I'd see probably a show a week. Uh, so awesome. being in LA, I mean, people play everywhere. They have little clubs. And, right. You know, yeah. you, you, you see just about it. There was a there was this uh, thing that it's called Royal Machines. They used to be called Camp Freddy, but it's like Dave Navarro, uh, uh, Matt Storm, like all these guys. It's they play, and whoever's in town, they sing covers. So you have people like coming in, like Steven Tyler played drums one time, and he would sing, and and then Ozzy would sing. It, it just That's it's awesome. a really, really cool thing. But L.A., when I moved here, I said, I'm going to go see a show at, like, every single venue in L.A., and it's just the most incredible thing. Yeah, yeah. I uh, 
I watched the, I don't know if it was a documentary, but on Motorhead, you know, and Lemmy, you know, down at the whiskey. And, you know, every time I order, you know, a, 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 a Lemmy, it's like, ah, tribute. <laughs> yeah, Lemmy's still got a chair at the Rainbow. Right. The Lemmy uh, chair yeah. there, that's a seat over yeah. there. Yeah. All right. So uh, uh, last question is, please describe what your room looked like growing up. <laughs> <laughs> it was it was a horror show. <laughs> it was it was a combination of Pink Floyd posters and Kiss posters and Nine Inch Nails posters with lots of scantily clad females and um, and uh, black black lights, red lights. Uh, I actually, when I was in nursing school, I actually had. Um, fake IVs running along the the ceiling and all that. <laughs> yeah, it was, it was my, my mom looked at me and she just said, I'm glad you're in the basement. <laughs> I don't want <laughs> any great. of our friends coming over and seeing this nightmare. <laughs> so I love that. Yeah. I love that. All right. Kellen, where can people find out more about you, about Delic, uh, connect on uh, social, whatever you want to share with people? Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, we're at Delic.com, you know, obviously is our, is our main, you know, company. Uh, and then we got ketamine wellness centers.com. Um, we're all over Facebook and, you know, and uh, Instagram and those kind of things. So, you know, and obviously if anybody is looking to talk to me or talk to, you know, anybody in our company, whether or not it's for treatment or interest in any of the things that we're working on, you know, it's 855-538-9355, which is 855-KET-WELL, W-E-L-L. Got it. Cool. Cool. Yeah. Kevin, thank you so much for joining us. Really appreciate your time. It's great, man. I had a great time. Pleasure's mine. Nice to meet you. Appreciate it, man. Uh, Likewise. All right. right. Take Take care. Thanks for listening to today's show. To check out more great cannabis podcasts, go to podconnects.com. Here's a preview of one of our other shows. Hey everyone, it's Ryan from the Cannabis Connoisseur Podcast. If you're looking for ways to utilize cannabis to keep you healthy, strong, and sharp, come join us every Wednesday where we dive into the best ways to use cannabis to optimize your life. Topics include cannabis and athletics, cannabis for productivity, cannabis for anxiety, cannabis for a healthy immune system, and so much more. If you're a curious connoisseur, this show is for you. So please head over to our page and we're looking forward to seeing you this week. Bye.